Welcome to Broken Office Chair, a new podcast produced by Alternatives, a Chicago-based nonprofit. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' executive director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie is a Chicago native and first-generation Salvadorian Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to talk frankly about the most important issues facing the nonprofit sector. A quick listener note, this episode contains language that may not be appropriate for younger listeners. For more information, check out the show's description. This week, Bessie is joined by Halesh Patel. Halesh is a consultant, educator, writer, and member of the art group, the Chicago Act Collective. When this was recorded, he was the executive director of Indivisible Institute, a nonprofit journalism production company based on the south side of Chicago. He has more than 20 years of experience in Chicago communities, working as a program manager, consultant, educator, artist, counselor, deputy and acting director of a community-based nonprofit, and leadership investment program officer at the Field Foundation. The Field Foundation is a philanthropic organization whose mission is to center racial equity and achieve community empowerment through justice, art, media and storytelling, and leadership investment. Over the past four years, he has been consulting with mostly smaller nonprofits and collectives to strategically plan and build human resource functions. In today's episode, Bessie and Halesh will discuss the problems within the philanthropy sector, social and political polarization within philanthropic entities, and the nonprofit industrial complex. Thank you for joining Halesh. Today we're talking about philanthropy and nonprofit. And why don't you tell us a little bit about why this topic is of interest to you? Yeah. So I think when I have to be in spaces where I'm giving talks or I'm I'm in more professional spaces where they're like, talk about your background. The standard bio is he spent 20 years in nonprofits. And I was at a talk in late November, early December, and that someone introduced me. And the first question was, how did you spend so long in nonprofits? Like how, like, how did you keep yourself sane? It was a younger person. They were maybe 19 or 20. And so I think about that every single time I talk about my professional experience. I'm like, I've been in nonprofits for a really long time, but in, in a multiplicity of ways. Uh-huh. And so for me, I think it's well-rounded. My mom thinks it's wayward, but I have been a high school teacher. I've been a teaching artist. You know, I counseled vets to the VA. But my entry into nonprofits was really through community building and, and education and arts education. And that's how I can enter the world of nonprofits. And so for me, that opened the door. But then what I'm trying to figure out now is what the thread is between uh-huh. all of them. Because I went from that to being deputy director at Hyper Art Center. And from that, I went to become a leadership investment program officer at Field Foundation. Right. And from that, I'm the executive director at Invisible Institute. So... For me, there's a thread there, mm-hmm. and I, that thread kind of is both tied to the challenges that I've seen and that I've wanted to address, mm-hmm. but also the work that's kind of rooted in community, even if community is a little bit of a, a dirty word nowadays. <laughs> and so so for me, my professional pathway is, is touches everything. I've mm-hmm. done education. I've done the arts. I had a stint in corporate. I've talked, and most recently, 
the things that I've been doing, especially with the direct work or that I also do pro bono consulting mm-hmm. is directly tied to leadership and organizational capacity. So for me, I think about nonprofits all the time. So now I'm thinking about that question that that 18, 19 year old asked you and how do you stay sane? What do you think that question was about? It was very, she followed up with a very direct question that oddly enough has been coming up consistently over the past few years. And that is as a person of color, how do you navigate through nonprofits? Like how are you, how do you navigate through the pay? How do you get navigate through the fact that you might be working more than 40 hours a week? You know, that you're, you're doing work that she's like, I want to do work that's meaningful to me. I don't want to go do a different type of work. I want to like, she wanted to do legal aid work. Uh-huh. So like, I want to do legal aid work, but I'm worried that I'm going to end up in a nonprofit and work like 70 hours a week for $40,000 a year. Which is a very real fear. Which in is a very, his very real field. fear. And, she, and then she added on that I'm a woman of color. What does it mean for me to exist in spaces that are, you know, what if I go to a nonprofit where everyone's white and I'm the only person of color? And how do I navigate? Like, what do I do? How do I take care of myself? How do I make sure I don't go insane? Where are my people at? And so all of these questions bubbled up. And for me, that's really resonance because when I was in philanthropy, I oversaw the fellowship program, the intern fellowship Mm -hmm. program. And in addition to the leadership work I was doing, I was bringing young people in, usually undergrads or grads, and try to teach them, you know, here's career in philanthropy. And most of the people I I was bringing in were people of color. And so what I ended up doing after the first cohort is I would sit all the all my people down once I've hired them and say, okay, I need to have a real talk with you. You know, like, this is what it's going to be like. If you have any issues, if anything pops up, I need you to come to me. We'll talk, we're going to talk about it. I need you to know that you have a pathway directly to me, any microaggressions, anything else. And so that's really important to me. And that's kind of been the marker at each of my workplaces is making sure that I provide that space, but also that if I'm going to put someone on a pathway through professionally, that I don't send them into spaces that are where they're going to be isolated and left alone. And that's the problem with, as I was doing leadership work, and as I think about leadership programs, I think about even creating pathways for organizers, grassroots leaders, anyone. I don't want to send them back into sectors or spaces where they're the only person. And and it's like, we're going to create this pathway for you, but we're going to create it into a space that is predominantly white and you're going to feel harm. I feel like you just gave me so many loaded statements. I'm trying to figure out which one to pick out here. I I think it's interesting that a 19-year-old thought to ask this question. It was that clear to her that early on how problematic this is. And yet we have people in this field that don't see how problematic that is. Yeah. What do you think that's about? Well, it's it's a... This is going to sound super cliche, and I should articulate this in a better way, but we're at a different time. Mm-hmm. Like, we're at a different time where that question can be asked. Like, if we, pre-pandemic, even I would say pre-2018, 2017, if you had asked, you know, if a young person asked that question, I would have been really shocked. Now I'm not so shocked because now it's common knowledge. Now you can go on Twitter and hear about all these stories of, you know, people isolated people, you know, facing challenges. So it's, it's not only common knowledge, but organizers and young people are, especially young organizers, they know this now and they won't, they're they're not going to stand for it anymore. Whereas before, and I, I'm not trying to ding the, I want to be careful. I'm not trying to ding the people, including myself who went into nonprofits Uh and say that we kind of 
would just take it, but we would, you know, like we would go into those spaces and we're like, this is the work and we're just going to suck it up. And young people aren't going to take it anymore. They're like, we're, we've seen the world and you, we, oh, you opened the lid on life for us, you know, with everything from protests to, you know, showing systemic racism to everything else. And we see all the, we see all the things that are inside and you're not going to, you can't hide it from us anymore. And you can't say, well, that's just the way it is. They don't settle for that anymore. And so when she asked me that question, not at that point, I was not shocked. Mm -hmm. But to be clear, if she had asked me that question five years ago, I would have been like, where are you getting your information? Like, how are you thinking about it? Because we're just not there. We're not there as a sector yet. Ayoka and I were talking about how when we came in, it was expected that you put in your dues and not complain about it. Yeah. And you are supposed to be paid poorly with long hours. And that's what gets you promoted. And if you're not willing to do that, then how dare you expect anything else? Yeah. And I don't want to speak for all. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not going to, I'm going to say, I'm continue to say people of color because mm -hmm. I, I have problems with BIPOC, but I will also use that term now. I don't want to speak for all BIPOC folks, but I can say for me, not only as a person of color, but as an immigrant, mm -hmm. that totally makes sense to me. Like you put in your dues. That's mm -hmm. how, that's how I was raised. That's mm -hmm. like, that's, and then you couple that with the fact that there's a, almost an, uninhibited internal deference to white culture uh -huh. and to white nonprofit culture. And you put those two things together and of course you're going to work like 78 hours a week. You know, it's funny when you heard, when you said that one of the, one of the story when you talked about this person asking you this question, one of the things that went right into like my, from my memory bank, I, you know, I'm also, my parents are immigrants and I, didn't have exposure to what the different types of jobs are, right? My mom's a housekeeper. My dad was a cook. All of my mom's friends were housekeepers. Like this white collar workplace was completely unfamiliar to me. And so all I knew about professions were the professions that my mom had exposure to because those are the people who she worked for. So those are the positions we knew paid well because they paid her, right? And so she worked for doctors and lawyers and marketing people and that sort of thing, right? And so I came out of school, out of undergrad, still not knowing what I wanted to do. That's a whole other uh, tangent. But I took my LSATs. That didn't feel right. I took my GMATs. That didn't feel right. And then I'm just getting brochures from all these different schools on what to do. And so I get this social work brochure, a master's in social work. And I'm like, that feels right. So I call my mom and I was like, hey, I decided I wanted to get my MSW. And there's like dead silence. I think I just disappointed my immigrant mother who worked so hard <laughs> to, you know, get me to where I'm at. And then she goes, but social work is for rich white girls who don't have anything better to do. And that's how they spend their time. And so listeners, you can't see Hilesh nodding right now. This was a point of contention for years because she's like, how are you ever going to make a living off of this? Yeah. And, and so it's so funny because there was, there's so much wrapped into that comment that ties back to the expectation of low wages, deference to white culture. This is a thing they get to do because they have money. And this idea, it also helps tie into that white saviorism. Like you get to help because they have, you have resources and that's the benefit, right? Yeah. I always, I used to joke with, and I, I don't know how historically accurate this is and I could be totally wrong. So someone who's listening to this podcast can strike me with lightning. 
I always joke that there's a long, obviously, when we're talking about colonialism and the way culture has been set, Uh we can go way far back. But for American nonprofits, for me, the anchor on all of this is the Peace Corps. Okay. And, you know, the Peace Corps, which really, you know, flowered and took prominence with John F. Kennedy's tenure, was this idea that, you know, you would go do service. And it was also very rooted in Catholicism. And so this idea that you would go to different countries and do service there and help out there. Well, one of the things that I I used to think about with nonprofits is it's almost like a Peace Corps model for urban areas or rural areas where you go into communities and you go bring your service to those communities. And there's something, sometimes the work is quite lovely, you know, and Mm -hmm. produces really beautiful and lovely things. There's also a highly problematic nature to it where you're, you're going in and saying, we have this thing to give you into the community. We're going to bring this thing to the community that you don't have and make the community better. And a lot of the people who come in are not from the community. So they have a passport to go in. They have a passport to go into the community. But then the question bubbles up, do those people have passports to come into your community? They have, are you creating a pathway in and out? Also, what are you bringing to them? Do they ask for it? Are you getting funding for it? You know, how are you describing them in your, in your applications for funding? Are you talking about their poverty? Are you like, uh-huh. there's all sorts of things wrapped up in that. So for me, you know, this idea of service gets rooted in that, that it's kind of, it's almost nonprofits have kind of, it's a section of American culture that is rooted and it's like a slight, so it's like it has a quality and characteristic that people associate with, with service. And because of that, you can also, in addition to everything you were talking about, you can get away with having people work an insane amount of hours. There's something really interesting about this concept of service that fascinates me in nonprofit, because why is it a service and not just a fundamental human right to be able to thrive? And there's a thing I feel like we do in society because we don't recognize it as a fundamental human right or we don't recognize people of color as fully human or both, right? And I'm sure it's much more complex and I'm oversimplifying it, but there's this shift of responsibility because if we think about this as our responsibility as society, then this is actually on our government to make sure that we have access to healthcare for all, and we have quality education for all, but that's not what we do here. We privatize it and ask individuals for low pay to fix these problems Yeah, while taking money from a, a field that's, I think the last stats had a philanthropy at 94% white. And so working a nonprofit, how much of our, you know, I'm, I'm asking you a question that I, I already know our answer, but how much of our decision-making is driven by those dollars? Yeah, I mean, you and I both know the answer. I think, I think the thing I think about is, and I hope I get I get her name right. She's phenomenal. There's a paper by Megan Ming Francis that where she dug into the decisions around the Brown versus Board and NAACP's connection to Brown versus mm-hmm. Board of Education, where the funding came from. The funding for that came from a really large philanthropic entity. Now, originally, the NAACP's work was primarily around anti-Black violence and lynching in the South. Mm-hmm. And this foundation came along and said, we will give you and this um, an obscene amount of money if you focus on education. 
and we can talk about like the the efficacy of Brown versus Board of Education, all that. But for me, this the kind of crux of that story, and I think what Megan Ming Francis is talking about is that a philanthropic foundation came in and shifted the mission of this organization, this this of color organization that was doing work for people of color into something that was about integration and was not about anti-black violence. And so when you said that, that, that was what I thought of. That was like the thing that I, I'm thinking about is how many times, like who, who gets to decide, who sets the tone, who says, that's great. I love the work that you're doing, but what we're seeing is that, you know, the way to prevent gun violence is to do this, this, and this. And if you could really just do that, we will give you a hundred thousand dollars for five years. And so when that happens, what happens to the organization and what happens to the work? Like who's, who's in control? Who's in control of the work? Again, there's so much complexity and nuance to it. The work is good. You know, it can be good. Uh-huh. But at the same time, who's deciding what communities need, you know? And I think there's been a recent shift with some foundations, and I'm going to give props to them, where there's more of a focus on, like, really authentic community empowerment, where it's like, instead of saying we're going to empower you, we're actually going to give you the funds to do it because we're, we're going to, it's about trust. But that trust gets associated with risk uh-huh. and, and, you know, mitigating risk and risk assessment and risk value when certain people in foundations or any entity, whether it's corporate or foundations, talk about giving money. They're like, well, how risky is this? You know, as opposed to, I trust you to do the work. Let's talk about that for a second. And I wish I had stats in front of me, and I think we'll drop them in the link with this podcast. But the research is now showing, right, there's a ton of research in this area that executive directors of color are funded at lower rates than our white peers. And when we do get funded, we get smaller gifts with more strings attached. And even when we do get ED positions, they tend to be for smaller nonprofits. And what does all of that mean for how we do the work? I thought that's such a loaded question. I know. I did that on purpose. I know. <laughs> I know you got an answer for that. <laughs> I mean, it kind of answers itself. It's super difficult. I want to answer the question directly, but and then also tell you what popped in my head. Yeah, no, for sure. Go wherever you want with this. <laughs> no, I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. And it also goes by, you know, it sets the tone. Mm-hmm. It sets the tone. Once you set the tone in a sector for how you compensate leaders of color, then that gets that, that, that you set the tone for everyone. Mm-hmm. So one foundation, one organization says, we're going to do it this way, then everyone's going to follow suit. And then it becomes the norm. And not only becomes the norm, it, you feed into it every single year. And then it becomes trying to like kind of subvert that. You know, people come in and say like, well, how can we, how can we change this? But one of the things I've been doing for the past like maybe five or six years is pro bono consulting. And I do like one to four organizations or one to four individuals per year. And it's been a wide, eclectic range of folks. But consistently, the thing that I've encountered the most is that most nonprofit boards, most, I'm sure there's a percentage out there that I don't have, and I can also be talking out of my, you know, they don't see value. They, when they look at budget lines in, in a nonprofit organizational budget, 
they see staff salaries and staff benefits as the high, it's usually the highest level. Mm -hmm. And when they see that, they panic and they freak out. And they're like, why are we spending so much? And look, all our money's going to this. So when you, when you already have that as a baseline of establishing value on, on the people that work are doing, that the, the people, the work that people are doing, and then you add on into that, integrated into that, the kind of lack of racial equity and that boards are looking at this kind of budget line with the way in a specific lens. And then on top of that, they're like, well, how do we look at the value of your workers? And how are we looking at the value of your, of color workers? And to me, then it becomes even more insidious and more problematic. It's interesting because on average, white executive directors get paid more money than, you know, executive directors of color. So there is an argument here that boards of white-led organizations are more understanding to how their EDs should be paid. And so it's really just a lot of times when it's people of color that is at the, that are at the table, that that becomes an issue. I think it's tiered. Uh -huh. I, I think actually it's tiered because okay. I think like right now, like when you look at the arts and the arts education sector, you know, and people are talking about the value of the work and mm -hmm. the value of people. The work that teaching artists have, have been doing and are doing has been very undervalued, you know, and that's not traditionally a, a sole POC area. It is more nowadays, and which is really great. And we can talk about that. It's also pe how people look at the work. That's, you know, people might look at that as service work, mm -hmm. but teaching artists have been historically underpaid in the city of Chicago nationally too. and it hasn't been until like, I want to say the last 15 years, if not shorter, that teaching artists have been getting appropriate rates, you know, like more than $50 an hour. It used to be that they used to get way less than that. They wouldn't get paid for planning or anything like that. So there are also, I think, certain ways that whether it's boards or people external to the organization who are giving money, see that there are certain jobs in an organization that are just undervalued, uh -huh. you know, or how about an outreach person? You know, the outreach person will get this money. Also, we should have a person of color do the outreach because they know the community. And so like, for me, it's like, it's all meshed together, but there's also, it's like tiers of mm -hmm. how they're looking at general value of work. And then on top of that, they can throw in another bias or they can throw in another prejudice or throw in another element of racism that will even bring their value lower because they're looking at it from a value perspective, which already as a foundation, not foundations, but as a foundational way of looking at things for me is already problematic. It's like, I don't know, but that's, I mean, I could be totally wrong on that. The in, so what comes up for me right now is just the inherent structure of how philanthropy works, right? Right now there's this huge push for leadership of color in the field. I find it very amusing how much organizations have been pivoting their strategies now and I'm like, oh look, you have you were able to hire black and brown people. There's just now money associated with you hiring black and brown people, right? So now it's more of a priority for you. But one of the things that bugs me in this push to hire more black and brown people is that there are not there's not an increase in dollars associated with it, and there's no accountability for creating environments that allow black and brown people to thrive. And I talk about this. I have a friend 
who has gone to work for two different white-led organizations and it hasn't worked out. And each time I, I would tell her, I'm concerned that you're going into this predominantly white environment and they're not going to, going to be able to work with you the way that you need to thrive because this is one of my favorite people to have worked with, right? And so there's all these, especially as we talk about this great resignation and why are workers leaving and whatever. And I'm like, it's not just, there's a, it starts at, it's not just about hiring black and brown people. It's about the values. It's about the environment. It's about the pay. And there's no accountability on all of those fronts. No accountability is oversimplifying it, but you know. I don't think that's a bold statement. No accountability is right. There's an organization actually that I have a lot of respect for and that I really admire that created pathways for students of color to get access to a specific type of college experience. Uh And for years, they created an extraordinary pathway. Like they, in terms of funding, in terms of getting them there, in terms of support, it was great. What was becoming apparent, this was early on, I think they remedied it even like tenfold. They've done a great job. But early on, they would they would create the pathways and the students would be at these colleges and then they would just, they would be, some of them would be struggling. Some of them would be, have mental health issues. Some of them would be like, there's no one here I can talk to. There's no one here who looks like me. There's a, there was, and I think for me, that was an, a very, it was an example of how a lot of leadership programs in Chicago work. Uh-huh. Because you can, you, everyone does a really good job of let's create these pathways. Let's talk about like how to build your capacity, but then they send them back to sectors that are still highly problematic and Uh that they're, they're like, they need, they're just floating, you know, they're floating in these spaces where they don't have support. They might be the only person that looks like them, all these different things that are bubbling up. And they're like, you gave me all these skills, but now I'm back here and like, what am I supposed to do? I'm ba- I'm still back at my company. You haven't, the company hasn't changed. The organization hasn't changed. The sector hasn't changed. All you're doing is just establishing the capacity and building these pathways for leaders of color. Where are, you, where are you sending us? You're just sending us back into those spaces. So when you talk about your friend, for me, I'm like, there's a robust ecology of organizations and programs that are doing the work to say like, we'll make you a better leader. But how many of those organizations and how many people are trying to do the work to also change the organizations themselves and the sectors? Because everyone's focused on individual. Let's, let's, let's do individual cohort building, you know, and again. That biggest pet peeve in the field. No, but I see this with a lot. I mean, also I have a lot of love for a lot of leadership programs who I think Mm -hmm. do it really amazing, you know, but as a sector, that's a big challenge. You know, it's like, you can't just say you're building, like you have to do it all. You have, like, if you're going to tackle it, tackle it all. And I realize that's easy. That's really easy. That's a really easy thing to say, but that's also like, it really guts me, you know, like when you, when you ask an organization to do DEI work or any way you want to call it, racial equity work, DEI work, whatever that you know, acronym or the moniker is, and you say, okay, we're going to send you to all these trainings you know, and then come back and, you know, have infinity spaces or do this or do that. Do they have an accurate understanding and recognition of how difficult that is that you're training people, but then you're sending them back into an institution that by its very existence could be 
racist, that could be problematic, and that is, you know, all sorts of other things. So how are you you're talking about the individual, but are you also talking about like, how do you tier your levels of support and your levels of change, you know, from the individual to the organization to the systemic? And how do you phase it out? Like, you don't have to do this right away, but you have to have a commitment to it right away. And, and so that's when you talked about your friend, like that hit really hard for me for two reasons. One, because I'm, of everything I'm just saying, but also two, because when you're a, a leader of color and you go into organizations where you're the person dealing with all that, you end up becoming, for lack of a better way of saying it, a sin eater, you know, and I know that everyone defines sin eater a different way, but for me, what it means is you face situations on a daily basis, a daily basis that are highly problematic, highly charged, full of microaggressions. And as a leader, you have to, you're the one who has to eat them. Mm -hmm. You like physically eat them so that the organization can be protected, so that you're protecting the other people of color on your staff, you're protecting your staff in general, you show up to the board. You have to do all these things so that your mission stays pure. There's something, I have a really small example, but I think it, it's, it shows a little bit of what you're talking about. We do a lot of trauma-informed work. And one of the requirements of one of our grants is that we take this assessment to be trauma-informed, that shows that we're trauma-informed, right? And one of the questions on this assessment, because one of my takeaways the last time I did it was that the survey itself was white-centered, but I couldn't quite communicate how. And one of the questions on this trauma-informed assessment was, do you have a safe space or a brave space policy? And my, one of our directors brought up that that policy was inherently problematic, but she couldn't also couldn't quite communicate why. So a couple of days or weeks went by because th this is one of the questions we got docked on because we have one, but I've deleted it off the employee manual because I hate it so much. So we were kind of playing with this question because we this is a thing we're supposed to have. And so she sends us this article and she's like, this person said what I couldn't say. And it's this article written by a Black woman talking about how safe space and brave spaces are problematic because as a Black woman, every single time she enters a space, she has to be brave. She doesn't get to take off her Blackness. These things, these conversations are about her. These microaggressions are directed towards her. And so what's actually needed, if we really wanted to have this conversation, is accountability conversations, particularly for white people to be accountable to the harm that they create, not a, you know, nice, feel-good, safe space policy. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Most of the anti-racist work that happens in nonprofits or the DEI work is exactly as you said, like it's centered around how do we make this a better place for people of color? But it doesn't address, you know, like the, everything that you're saying. Yeah. That's why I love that example because it's such a small thing, right? But it just illustrates how we show up to this work. And I was mentioning this in another session where there is this article that, uh, not article, I'm sorry, a report that was recently published for executive directors of color who are following white executive directors and what that looks like and all the commonalities in those experiences. And one of the pieces that they talk about is the amount of racial equity work we're expected to undertake that there's usually suspicion that there's some racial tensions in the organization, which is why they're bringing in a person of color, right? 
And we're asked to do this without really considering the emotional labor that comes with that work. Yeah, it's a lot of labor. But I think the other thing too is what doesn't get talked about because I don't want, and I'm not going to say this the way I want to say this. I know that this work that you're t that we're both referencing, mm -hmm. whatever we want to call it, DEI, anti-racist, like whatever the work mm -hmm. is, it's supposed to center people of color. Mm -hmm. What it's really supposed to do is not just center people of color, but center black people and center black mm -hmm. black experience. And that in and of itself is problematic to some organizations. But it also, if it's if it really wants to be successful, it has to talk about white loss of identity, what it means to be positioned as white. And and I don't mean that in a, you know, like, let's let's get this book and talk about, you know, whiteness sort of way. But I mean it as, why do you call yourselves white? You know, like this, a lot of this, a lot of the problematic work that goes into making organizations sustainable in the way that they are in a problematic way has to do with centering on that loss of identity. Like, do you know who you are or are you just identifying as white? And when you have those kind of, I've had those conversations in anti-racist spaces and the visceral anger that's come back has been like palpable because when you do that and you do it in the context of a nonprofit or any other organization, but specifically a nonprofit, then you have to interrogate where you're getting your money from, how you're talking about it in app grant applications, and then how your work is built on like if you're work if you're talking about also that identity aspect of it then you have to talk about in many ways like where are you in this work uh -huh. with some of the community work some of the organizational community work that and it doesn't matter to the sector let's just take let's take social service going into communities on the south and west side and saying we're gonna we're gonna do this work we're going to do whatever work that's connected to the social service mission that we're doing the work that you're doing is in service of the black communities, uh, let's say, let's say in the west side of Chicago. And if the staff of an organization that's doing that work is 80% white, I want to ask that staff, like, where are you in this? Like, are you white or are you, where is your identity in this work? And how does it play into the power dynamics? And are you interrogating that as well? And most of the time that's not interrogated because what's interrogated is how can we make our everyday life in this, inside this box, mm -hmm. in this cube, more palpable and more easy to deal with? Like, how can we just be easy to deal with each other as opposed to interrogating the identity of this organization and ourselves in this work? Why did you make this decision? Like all of those things are really difficult and they'll be really fruitful, but no one wants, it's not that no one wants to, but it's very rarely talked about. I think that's a little bit of what has come out of what I am calling the post-George Floyd era. Right. And, and I don't think, honestly, it's going really far because we there there's a lot of conversations about privilege and what that means and bias and book reading and clubs and things like that. But nobody really talks about I to acknowledge in this country, because it's what capitalism is, that you have a shit ton of money means that at some point there was exploitation for you to have a shit ton of money. Right. You may not feel like you're exploiting somebody today as the person who inherited this money. Someone did. It's impossible to be rich without it, right? So there, there's that piece of it. But there's also this really minor, like not minor, but a smaller piece in how it shows up in every day 
what privilege did you have that you could take a $40,000 a year job to work on the West side because you don't have student loan debt, you know, but it, it, those conversations become really hard because my parents worked really hard to make sure I don't have student loan debt. And every time you start to prod at a person's individual circumstance, it feels like an attack. Yeah. When, when you do that prodding, that the benefits and the rewards of that are so rich in terms of the narratives and of destabilizing that problematic culture. Like you could have a white nonprofit worker at any level mm-hmm. who is making like, let's say $40,000, a year, whose parents struggled and they came out of like enormous difficult circumstances. That narrative, bringing that narrative into the room is and acknowledging that, but also acknowledging the privilege and integrating both goes like a million miles to creating a, a more equitable work culture for me that as opposed to just kind of like defaulting to, I just, I don't want to bring that in. I don't, I don't think that has a place or I feel like everything works the way it works because you have to erase, you have to just put people into, in their metric buckets. But going back to philanthropy, if we did some prodding there, you know, those of us who have to do the reporting and all the strings attached to the money, there is something about that, right? This proved to me that you are worthy because that's what it is. It's competition. You have to prove that you are the best organization to get this money. So why are you worthy of getting this money? Why is your population the ones that, and here, prove that you did the thing that you said you were going to do with this this money, this inherent distrust. And I remember reading this thing that was like, if you're going to give money, just give the money and don't worry about what happens with it and all the things that come with it, right? And because, you know, even if you're giving money to somebody on the street, we have this conversation, are they going to do drugs with it? Are they going to go drinking? I don't care. Here's 20 bucks. I'm going to give it. It's I'm done with it, right? But it says something about how we think about people and individuals when we attach all these strings to the money that we're given, right? And so if you go back and explore your identity and where your principles and where your values are coming from, you can start to unpack and think about what is it that you're trying to achieve and approach that work differently. I think there's also something there about how, especially now, people are unable to untangle the individual from the systemic. Like even that example of giving money to someone, to someone who's homeless or to someone who's houseless on the street, mm-hmm. they come up to you for money and you're like, are you going to use this for, you're like, you know, in, mm-hmm. in your head, are you going to use this for something? Just give them the money. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are really concerned about that, then you go to the next tier and you talk about like, then you can talk about service. Then you can talk about how do I address the systemic? Mm-hmm. But you're not going to address the systemic with that individual. That's not what's called for at that moment. Mm-hmm. They're not asking you to address the systemic. They're asking you for $1 to $20 so they can go get something to eat or do whatever. And that's not for you to judge. And that came up too when, when we were like in the early days of the pandemic and we're doing all this worker relief. There was all sorts of outcry around like, how do we know if someone's undocumented? What happens like, what, what information, we're going to be asking for information for people to get funds relief funds, workers can show up. Well, how do we know someone might just show up? And, you know, we have to ask certain questions to make sure that, you know, we give the money to the right people. Just give them, 
who cares? You know, mm-hmm. few people, some people show up, you know, and they get the money. That's fine. Your need to go in and kind of put lines of, you know, or metrics to meet for people who are like in real need right now is going to stall the process. And not to mention, it's really terrible. It, it's this thing, though, around, again, capitalism, I think, right, where I work really hard for my money. So I need to make sure that you're entitled to the to my money. Right. This almost as if I am more special and more deserving because I have this job as opposed to this really interesting so, for example, for me, I have a graduate degree. So that automatically gives me a shit ton more privilege, right, and more access, even as a person of color, that that master's degree opens doors, right, especially right now. And so I could tell a narrative in which I'm like, well, I worked really hard and I have this master's degree and you can just do it, too. And I shouldn't have to give you $100. You can just go find a job. And it ignores the entire other piece that you're talking about around systems. But I think that there is people don't want to disentangle their individual narrative from the larger issue because then it acknowledges, one, not as much control over your own life as you'd like, but also, two, some responsibility towards making it better. Yeah. Can you imagine if the IRS did, in, you know, individual audits of everyone and said, is it really your money? <laughs> Where does your money come from? At various points. And let's go through your whole life. Uh-huh. And let's talk about when you went to elementary school, when you went to high school, when you went to college, community college, four-year college, whatever, and you got your job. At all those points, was it really your money? Was it was, like, when, when did the pathways of privilege come in and start like, let's do an audit? Mm-hmm. of your life that would freak the shit out of people because that would push like that you what you were saying is like that's why people freak out they're like because then it's not just it's not just that you're attacking them you're attacking everything that has been the foundation of how they got to where they got to mm-hmm. and in some ways i totally understand that mm-hmm. and respect that because i'm a human being and i struggle and i you know like my mental health is also really important so i'm like Sometimes I'm just trying to find solid ground. And if you destabilize people from their solid ground, they like totally freak out. But that interrogation also goes beyond this idea of privilege, you know, and is really important. And I have a feeling, I hope that we'll get there, you know, when we're, I hope that, I hope that we'll get there. But, and I think that we're going to slowly get there, but we're going to have to wade through a lot of muck. And I think that's what we're doing right now, wading through a lot of muck, you know, whether it's we're watching hearing, we're watching someone getting interviewed on TV and getting, you know, holding your own against people trying to kick the shit out of her or in different spaces. We're, we're watching like this, like pushback because people are, they're pushing back because they're like, you don't get to interrogate who I am. You don't get to interrogate like my individual and then connect it to the systemic. So I know systems change happens very slowly. I get that. But it's so ridiculously frustrating. Even right now in philanthropy, I was talking about this with one funder in particular. We're we're seeing a lot of really great funders really step up and do the work and have the difficult conversations and put their dollars behind it. And so that's definitely happening. But I feel like just like everything else in this country, there's another like backlash almost to that style of giving 
And we're seeing other funders kind of double down on their problematic practices. Yes. I feel like, and I will get in trouble here. So because you, <laughs> you showed up, I'm going to show up. I feel like philanthropy is, you can bifurcate it into two pathways of growth in the past few years in response to events. One is to become more progressive and to become more inclusive and, and to become more authentic and more interrogative, self-interrogative. And one is to become more conservative, uh -huh. you know? And I feel like that's been happening simultaneously at the, like, there are foundations, philanthropic entities that have, are like, we understand who we are. We understand the problems. We're going to try to be better and we're going to make some sacrifices to do it. And there are other ones that are doubling down, you know, and both of those, what get, doesn't get talked about is what, how both of those are rooted in the boards, uh -huh. you know, and where that conservative element has, has roots in. Every time there's a couple of comments that you've made that keep coming, bringing me back to the nonprofit AF blog that so many of Ule. us, yes, that so many of us love. Our, our king. <laughs> yeah, right. The one saying all the things that the rest of us can't say because of the power dynamics with philanthropy. But, you know, one of the things that he's advocating for is to get rid of boards and how inherently problematic they are. But another thing he said in his last blog, I think it was for Black History Month, he talked about white executive directors or, or white people in leadership examining their privilege and stepping down if that's what's called for. What do you think of that? I think that's great. I, and, I, and I know EDs who've done that. Really? I yeah, don't. I do. I do. And I love that. And for me, that goes back to something that you said earlier, which is, I, you said, I know things take time and it's very frustrating. You know, like uh -huh. when people say like, this is going to take a long time. I think that there is a way to do this work if you're white or if you're in a position of power where you hold privilege and phase it out. The problem is that it's not, the problem isn't that people are holding power. It's just that they're holding power for an indefinite period of time, uh -huh. you know? And for me, the white EDs that I've known who've done what you've talked about have phased it out. And, and that, to me, that is like an extraordinary way of looking at it. They're like, these are my benchmarks. This is what I want to hit. I'm going to get the organization to this level, and then I'm going to step back. And they've done it. And that is like phenomenal. And that phased approach for me, like I think about phased approaches all the time. You know, whether it's like, we're going to increase staff salaries, you know? Yes, we've been working on that forever. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I don't mm -hmm. want to definitely like downplay or negate the need to do that. Mm -hmm. But you, if you're going to bring someone up to a level, like, I don't think there's a bad thing in attaching and not to performance, but to growth, mm -hmm. you know? And that's a different conversation. Like, we're going to do this and we'll get here by this point. But let's bring you into the room and let's make everything glass so you can see the budget, so you can see everything and be transparent, so you can see why we're making these decisions. Mm -hmm. That's a different process than, well, we're going to, this is what we're going to do and you have to trust us on it, you know, right. a few years. But I've seen YDDs do that and I love that. And I've, I, I don't think it's, because we're not just talking about white privilege and white EDs, we're also talking about executive directors and the power that they have that mm -hmm. hold and how they interrogate that power and what it means for them to know that they have privilege and also to step back. Like, are you being effective? And if you're not being effective, then it's okay to step back. You're like, is your, is, are you bringing your ego into the room when you're making this decision? Oh, we're having that conversation right now internally. 
something came up and that is one of my worst fears is to stay way past my usefulness in any position. But there is, with white executive directors, for me, it's been less about having them step down and more about how do you use your whiteness to create opportunities for others? And that's actually where my real beef comes in. I've also seen organizations, I'm thinking two specifically, one mm-hmm. in Minneapolis, one in Oakland, where a board or folks in the organization have decided that we need a POC leader and the white EDs just, or the white leader or someone in leadership has just stopped. And then they brought the POC leader in and the organization faltered. In one case, it, like they lost a dram- they lost dramatic funding. Mm-hmm. Because there's an impulse to like, we just need to make this decision. Like, no, right. you don't need to mm-hmm. just make this. Like, everyone's focused on the content. You know, everyone's like focused on the like the surface content. Like, let's change the wording in a book. Let's mm-hmm. change the look of the board. Let's change the look of the staff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you don't change the practice of how you do things and the content is irrelevant, then it's irrelevant. Like, if you're not going to change the practice, then you can do as much cosmetic changes as you want, quote mm-hmm. unquote. But it's that- getting liposuction, but not changing your diet. Right. No, and there's something to that, right? Because one of the things we talked about is some practices, white people on average have a better network. They have more access to resources. They get funded at larger rates. And so what is the impact of just bringing a black executive director in or another person of color, right? And not being fully prepared for everything that comes with that. But this is where I think white executive directors and white people in leadership have an opportunity to have the difficult conversations that can put me or you or other people at risk to have because it will be received differently. I don't think that's happening. I haven't seen that. I should say that. I I haven't seen it happen to the extent that needs to happen. What I have seen is white executive directors advocate for more money for their organization so they can expand services to black and for black and brown kids. And I was like, well, those black and brown kids are going to grow up to want to have jobs and you guys are still not changing the actual system that they're going to go into. Well, let me let me ask you a question. Because mm-hmm. the other thing I think about, this came up a few years ago when there was a review in a certain local newspaper, very large, well-known local newspaper, <laughs> about a show, a theater show. Mm-hmm. And the review, I'm being coy, but it, it was a problematic review. It was a theater critic giving a review of the show. The actors in the show were Black. The reviewer was white. And so it caused, you know, in some ways it was polarizing. People were defending the reviewer. A lot of POC folks were like, what the hell was that? That was, you know, Mm -hmm. this is ridiculous. But what it did is it brought up an interesting conversation around theater critics. And what is the makeup of theater critics? Mm -hmm. Not only Chicago, regionally, nationally. And there was all this like, well, what can we do? You know, we need to, we need to just put people in there, you know, and we, we, we need more theater critics of color, you know, and we need them to review shows, but then look at the shows that they're reviewing. And it, so it brought up all these really fascinating, interesting conversations. The question that I had around that was, what can you do right now to invest in the next few years, whatever the next few years look like, five years, 10 years? If you're looking at a sector that need that you want to balance, like you want people who are reviewing and looking at the work. And you want people doing the work at the same time and you want to diversify both elements of it. How do you invest in that? Like, what does that actually look like? 
Uh-huh. You know, and so when you're talking about like white EDs wanting more money to do work in black and brown communities, like just give us more money. I keep thinking like, well, how how do you phase how do you phase out or phase that trajectory where you want to first off stop asking for money to do work in black and brown communities <laughs> and ask why you're doing that work. Uh-huh. Investigate your mission. To, you know, bring and diversify your staff, diversify your board, diversify the, the way that your practices and you're doing your work. Like all of that has to happen together, but it doesn't have to happen at the same time. And that's like the complexity of that is like makes my brain hurt. But there's like there's something there that's there are tangible things people could do. One one example that stands out to me is a white executive director was asked for her opinion by the Sun-Times for an issue that was happening in Chicago. And she said, I don't want to talk about this. I have an executive director that can talk to you. And so then she emailed me and said, I gave your name to the newspaper so that you can give an opinion. The newspaper never called me because they wanted her opinion, but there was a, a, a there there was something that she showed me in that moment where she was like, I, I don't need to be the one to take up space, yeah. right? Neither of us got to do it, but that was an a really specific, here I am going to create an opportunity. Bessie doesn't have access to this relationship. I'm going to introduce her. Yeah. A couple of things that we do, because the truth of the matter is, as challenging as it is to be a person of color, I'm not Black. And that is another unique experience, right? And that is that comes with its own set of challenges. So one of the things that we try to do is we take, because we know that particularly for executive directors of color, particularly Black executive directors, when we do get to ED positions, it's for smaller nonprofits. And because it's for smaller nonprofits, we don't have access to development teams or other things that help us grow. So we purposefully have started writing into all of our contracts that we go after because we do have a development team, right? And a lot of our resources are because this organization was led by white leadership for almost 40 years, probably more. That's just the one I'm aware of, right? And so because we do have access and we have a history that gave us access, we take about, we try to write 10% of our money to go back into small nonprofits that are black and brown led. It's something so simple that we do. And I'm always frustrated when I hear white executive directors take up space to ask for more money. I was like, why can't you pass some of that along? You have access. That's a really tangible thing that you could do to create access for other people and to normalize, you know, seeing other people of color as competent and effective at this job. Because yeah. a lot of times we just don't get FaceTime. Yeah. And so we bring people along for our relationships. We try to give exposure. That's all part of what we try to do. And so it's not a heavy lift for us. And we're still POC led, right? It should not be a heavy lift for our white peers to do. Yeah. The other thing that we're, we currently are doing that I'm really excited about is we just created a leadership program to pilot within the agency. We're starting with our leadership team. And the reason that we're doing it now is because we're majority POC on leadership. And what I said to my staff is that the truth of the matter is this job's just going to be harder for them. They're going to have to be on their A game. They're going to have to work harder. They're going to have to be more credentialed just to get looked at. And your mistakes are going to be taken much more seriously, right? 
And on top of that, you get to deal with all these fun microaggressions that your executive team currently shields you from whenever we can, right? And so you're going to hear, it actually took me back to something else, but part of our personal responsibility in leadership positions is how do we equip young people of color into these future leadership positions? How do we give them access? How do they get to practice these skills? Who do they get to know? What events can we send them to? How do we help them do that safely? You know, because I, for me, it was terrifying to be in a room full of white funders when I first started, right? So how do you help people navigate those spaces? Yeah. I know people who are doing, starting to do a really good job around that and pairing, you know, a core understanding of philanthropy with organizing mm-hmm. and making sure that the cohorts are predominantly POC and that they're prepping them, but also just having not relying on curriculum for leadership programs, but also talking like bringing EDs of color into a room with future EDs mm-hmm. saying like, I know you learned about this, this, and this. Let's talk about some examples. This is a concrete example of what happened to me. This is what happens when your board chair does something. This is what happens when, you know, this problem happens at work. Like everyone's against you because you made a decision. Let's talk through this. Mm-hmm. Like those are... The times that I've bring the, brought those up in like spaces, like that talk I referenced mm-hmm. at the beginning of this talk, where that young woman reached out, like I brought that up and the reaction was like, we, we don't get to hear about this stuff. We don't get to hear about like, it's not even the nitty gritty. It's just, we don't know how it shows up in real life. How it shows up in real life. That, yeah. That's really, really huge. So I, so I can name organizations who've done something positive by name. So I I was a McCormick fellow and one of the things, great things that they did was they got us executive coaches and I had a black woman as my executive coach. And this is Sonia's program. Yes. Yes. Sonia Matthews. Yes. She's the best. She is the best. And it was so wonderful to have her as an executive coach and to have, you know, run things with, because a lot of the stuff is just troubleshooting on the ground. And she she would flat out say, Bessie, you're a woman of color. You're just not going to be received in that same way. And here is how you can soften your language or here's how you can get your point across in the right way. It's just something that's more, you know, more tailored experience. And people underestimate how helpful it is. And I'm like, this is the part where representation matters. And having somebody with your, you know, experience or something similar is helpful because, I've worked with a lot of white women I respect, but they can't give advice in the exact same way. Yes. I answered that as yes. <laughs> I chuckled, though, because an example of how unprepared I was, when I took my first executive director position, I had a lot of access to people right away in that position just because of how well-connected individuals with that organization were. And I had a couple of meetings with really big decision makers in Chicago. And I became, and decision makers of color, and I became so disheartened with the field that that's when I took a year off to travel. Because I was like, I don't know that I can do this. And this is work that takes 100% of you, 150% of you at times. You can't go into it half-heartedly, right? And so I was like, okay, I'm not beneficial to anybody. I need a break. Nobody prepared me for that. To see somebody that looks at you, it looks like you at the table advocating for something you don't believe in, that you know harms your community. Yeah. 
no one prepares you for that. But but there's an opportunity now to do that, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's happening more and more. But I think also there's also a fear of doing that, you know. That, mm-hmm. Why do you think that happens? Why do you think that people get to these leadership is it like you know we we work so hard to get our own into leadership positions and then they get there and they don't advocate for our best interests well that's the million dollar question isn't it (laughs) i've thought about that question a significant amount my short answer is i don't know it's something that i'm constantly curious about and i could try to talk about power and what power does and kind of the the fear of of looking the fear of trying to like please and the fear of like losing power and the fear of like things that you just might have to do. But I think all that's true. Mm-hmm. But I also think what you said, there's just not everyone has a model of what it's supposed to look like. And leadership is incredibly lonely. It is incredibly lonely. No one talks about that enough mm-hmm. that you can be an executive director or a president or any other type of leader in whatever space. And you quite often feel like you're flying by the seat of your pants and that you're making decisions and that you're, you're like, I feel alone. And so when you have that moment to actually talk to another leader of color and you're like, how's it going? Well, this happened. Oh my God, this happened. I know that's like, it seems anecdotal, but that, that's like everything. That's like Uh part of the million dollar question. And that it's more than just creating, you know, brave spaces and safe spaces, but it's akin to that, but it's not creating it within the organization. It's creating it within, in kind of a larger sphere. But as to, as to the why I still struggle with that. And I've run into that so many times with people who were in a assistant director position or into like a program Mm -hmm. position, and then they went to a higher position and it changed them. It changed them. They felt like they had to make sacrifices. They felt they had to do certain things and act a certain way for the benefit of the organization. And whether that is because they felt the weight of responsibility of the organization or because they were internalizing something or it was about power, I don't know. There are different moments and different examples where I've seen that Uh and it's manifested in different ways. I think about one person who was in her community and was an activist for a really long time and ended up going to the city and being the, the kind of gatekeeper of funding. And the challenge that that community had in dealing with her, she was far more restrictive and held the reins on that funding than anyone they had come in contact with. They were like, you're, you're one of us. You're our person and you're at the city the, being the person who's supposed to give us funding. And you're telling us you're not going to do that because you're like, well, you guys, you guys need a lot to work. You have, a, you have to work on a lot of things. It's like, what happened? Like, that's a very specific, that is an huh. actual example. And, and I've talked about that example multiple times over the past two years. And I still cannot tell you, I still cannot extrapolate it. I don't know what happened there. I don't know if it was, I have ideas about people, you know, in municipal spaces and the work that they feel is like important, how they function. And I think there's elements of that, but there's something else that I think You don't have to be a white ED to practice white privilege. Oh, absolutely. Somebody here says that. I don't remember who right now. I wonder too, though, if it's this fear of like messing it up for everybody. Like you can't be 
the first brown person to get to a position and then fuck it up and they're not going to hire another brown person or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's real. Uh-huh. Yeah. Also, who who am I to say like the rules of the game? Like you go into those spaces, the rules are completely different and that's a different from certain spaces for that's a different type of loneliness, you know. Uh-huh. And so it's easy for me to be critical, but it's also I've seen that's a that's a different type of loneliness. I've yeah. seen those folks who are like they they come in and two years later they come out and they're like shell shocked. You and I both have a similar privilege in that we're in spaces that allow us to speak our opinions about things. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> right. I keep joking about that. But yeah, I am I'm pretty outspoken. My board's aware of it. Our fund our foundations that fund us are aware of it. But I know that once upon a time I had a board that I feel like would have probably fired me too. And so that fear something that happens when this is your actual profession and how you eat, right? Yeah. Survival is a very real thing. If you don't know where you're gonna get your next check from you're less likely to take a risk. Yeah. And it's unfair to ask, sometimes ask people to take that risk if, if, you know. And I've seen a lot of leaders ask their program staff to take those risks and put themselves on the line. And they're like, and they do it sometimes because the leader's asking them, but that's not fair. That's not fair. You can't, At all. You can't put that on them. That's their livelihood. Worked with an organization last year who said the like, three people who were in like leadership positions said, you know, I don't care we lose all our funding you know we'll burn down the organization before we sacrifice our values i'm like you can't i mean i appreciate that but you have 22 people working underneath you whose salaries depend on this job and if you're going to like you have to be cognizant of that like you're responsible for them like do you see that responsibility and at the same time can you balance it with actually burning the shit down that you want to burn down i don't know if that's how to burn things down responsibly. How to burn things down responsibly. Yeah. This is how you play with matches. <laughs> like in a nonprofit and I feel like that industrial complex. That's complex. an amazing training for some for some how to play. We can make a zine. How to play with matches in a nonprofit industrial complex. There you go. That's our next topic. There is something about that though. When we decided to pivot into a more advocacy driven platform and decided to start externally expressing our opinion, we had multiple conversations with both our board and our staff because to your point, they need to be informed to make decisions that are best for them. Yeah. Right. So our staff was on board, but somebody could have said, yo, I, I'm the only income for all of my family. I can't work here if you guys are going to do that. I can't take that risk. And so we wanted people to be able to make informed decisions about whether you want to continue to work here if you know that your leadership team will go and say things like philanthropy is problematic in a public space, right? You've turned off your phone. I did not. And so that was part of our process in it. And we were very conscious of it because we were terrified that we'd lose some funding and some layoffs would have to happen because of that. Yeah, that's real. But that's that power dynamic, right, between us and foundations and boards and individual donors. One of the things that we talked about a little bit earlier was that there are foundations doing great work and donors in this space, right? Very much. Or having or implementing really great practices. What are some of those things that you've seen that really work for the relationship? One of my favorite things that my when I worked at Field. So I two things about Field. One, 
Angelique was very intentional about doing what you, uh, your, you, when you referenced earlier about your friend who said, you need to talk, you don't, don't talk to me, you know, uh-huh. to the newspaper. Uh-huh. Angelique was always very firm about like, if you need me for this quote, I'll do it, but go talk to this person. Go, go uh-huh. talk to Hillish. Like this uh-huh. is this program. Like that for me, like provided a model uh-huh. for everything. And when she did that, when sometimes she would do that and I would like be quoted in like a publication and organizations that I was working with would come ask me about it. And I know that's a small thing, but they're like, you know, like how did, like, you're just the, you know, you're just a lonely program. (laughs) But you're talking about this program. And I was like, and I explained, this is what she did. And that like raised the level of trust. Mm -hmm. But I think the other thing that one of, the vice president used to tell me all the time is when think about your power, you know, when you're in philanthropy, think about your power. Think about if you're asking a, an organization to come meet you, like, oh, we're going to have a, like, we're going to have a sit down meeting. Are you asking them to come downtown? Or are you going to them? Are you being both a host and a guest at the same? That's the thing that he always used to say. Are you being a host and a guest at the same time? Recognize your privilege, understand your power, Understand that these organizations are coming to you because they're asking for money and don't always take everything seriously. You know, don't just like show up in a meet. always show up in the meeting, like show up with your hunt, like your true self, hundred percent. And they'll always remember that that's how you build a relationship, you know? And if you're not, if they're not going to get funding, don't lead them on. Don't say, oh, well, we'll see, like say, no, this isn't going to work. Let's keep like, just keep the channels open and always be honest with them. And like that will relationships like that for me, when I was in the opposite side of philanthropy were everything. Mm-hmm. And when I was in philanthropy were also everything like that for me is core to a lot of the work that is being done right now. And when you model the things that you're asking the organizations to do, when you yeah. model them yourself, mm-hmm. then the organizations will respect you. And I know some very key foundations in the city that are doing that. They, they're like, and I've talked to people at foundations who were like, you know, who come to me and said, that was wrong. Like, I made a mistake. And I'm like, I will be your ride or die for the next 10 years because you said that. They like owned it and mm-hmm. they self-interrogate and they do it. They do it in front of you. They model it and they follow up on their on what they say they're going to do. That, that to me is like, it's like such a small ask. Like recognize your privilege, understand the power you have, try to subvert it, make sure you show up with your whole self, really understand what an authentic relationship is, and then model things that you want your organizations to do. Like actually model them. Like those are all, all four things. Then there's like the next tier up, like you are philanthropy writ large. What does it mean to change some of the sector and systemic things? Yeah, which I do want to, get a little bit into simply because I think some of our even more problematic foundations may think they're showing up authentically and they actually are showing up authentically. It's just authentically is problematic. Yeah. It's authentic (laughs) for them. It's authentic for them. Yeah. Still a problem. And so I know one of the things I appreciate about the foundations that we work with are the ones who do not stress me out. I can show up to a site visit and be completely honest and say what's on my mind. And I know our funding is not jeopardized yeah. because of it. And like, they're not being coy. Right. Right. They're being completely transparent about it. I've worked with Poke for years and I always look forward to their site visits. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> You're right. They're, it's Everyone be- there. Yes. 
everybody there. It's going to be Alto Eva gave me my first site visit from Poke and she I was a brand new program director. She terrified me, but I love Yvette. She's great. There is something about the, their site visits I actually look forward to because I know it's going to be a great conversation. We're going to talk about the issues. We're going to talk about the issues from an informed perspective. I'm not going to experience any subtle microaggressions talking about these poor black and brown kids. There is going to be no surprises in terms of here's the stuff that's working. Here's stuff that isn't working. That especially with multi-year grants, like, oh, we can just talk. Yeah. It's for me, it's a lot like if you're taking acting classes or you're taking improv classes, there's two important things like this. This should be like one on one onboarding for everyone who goes into philanthropy. The story's not about you and listen, like actually listen. Like if you want to be a good actor, you have to listen to the other person in the scene or the other people in the scene. You have to be present. And also you're, the story's not about you. It's about you're just a character in this play. And so. That to me, like if, if, you know, people who are entering philanthropy, if you can give those two valuable lessons to them, that also helps tremendously. Yeah. I want to expand on that listen part. There is a thing too with the whole evidence-based and that constant tension for me where evidence-based tends to be a little bit behind and doesn't allow for innovation. So I think the le listening becomes extremely important because the people on the ground sometimes have a pulse on things that you and I may not have, but they have and may not actually align with what you're reading in a report. Exactly. And the other thing I think about too, and to add on to that is it's not only that it doesn't, it might not align what you read in a report, it's that you have to recognize that the way they're doing things might fit into none of your frames. Yes. You know? Uh -huh. I think about like, I think about organizations that are working in different neighborhoods, especially on the South side, who are like highly effective at what they do, but they do not fit in the frames of either philanthropy or the city mm -hmm. in terms of funding. It's like, because they are nimble and they have trust and they can get things done in a way that no one else can get things done. It's like, if you fund them, you're funding them on trust. You're funding, you're, you're saying, I trust you to do the work. You're not funding them on metrics. Mm -hmm. On, on your metrics. And so what does that look like in philanthropy? Like, how do you, I wanted to say, how do you operationalize trust, but I don't want to make it such a capitalist term <laughs> or uh, terminology, but there's got to be a way to take that and implement trust, you know, into kind of the DNA of how you give grants to. I feel like nonprofit AF should be required reading for everybody. Yeah. I think that's where we're at at time. So is there anything else you want to share? This is great. Also, you were very patient when I was like rambling off on like tangents where I didn't even make sense to myself. But this was, this is great. Going back to how we started the conversation and I think about that young woman who asked the question and I think about sitting down with some of my interns at any of my jobs. Mm -hmm. And I, I get to see all my interns now. Like I, that's how like that gives me joy. I get to see my interns like just like when I was a high school teacher, I get to see my students all growing up. But mm -hmm. when I sit down with them and, you know, I say like, when I would sit down with them and say, here are the rules of the space, mm -hmm. you know, just so you know, I'm going to be transparent with you. Here are the rules of the space. Here are the problems. If you need anything, you come find me. We're going to get through this together. We're trying to change things, but it's not good. You know, the gratitude they had, like I had one who I'm going to, hopefully see very soon I had one person say like no one's ever ever talked to me like that and I'm like 
one, I wish someone had talked to me like that. Mm -hmm. But are there other ways we can institutionalize that across the board? Thank you, Flesh, for being here today. Thank you. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. It's produced and researched by me, Catherine Best, with special help from Monica George, Tyronica Boone, and Dave of Mixed Media. Stay tuned because next week Bessie will be joined by Leslie Honore to chat about the cost of being poor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>